0: I'll just speak louder, sir. Oh, okay, this, good.
1: You want to be politically correct. Go ahead.
0: No, sir. I just want to wear go the mask. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, the second question was about your tweets about the, the woman who died, who you're suggesting that Joe Scarborough was responsible.
1: Yeah, a lot of people suggest that. And uh, hopefully someday people are going to find out. It's uh, Certainly a very suspicious situation. Very sad. Very sad and very suspicious. Mr. President,
2: though, have you seen the letter that was written uh, by her husband begging Twitter to... to- delete your tweets, talking about how hard it's been for his family, for him yeah, to I deal have, with but that. But
1: I'm sure that ultimately they want to get to the bottom of it. And it's a very serious situation. As you know, there's no statute of limitations. So it would be a very good, uh, very good thing to do. That was
2: President Trump on May 26, 2020, giving new life to a conspiracy theory claiming that one of his media critics, MSNBC host Joe Scarborough, may have murdered a member of his congressional staff 19 years ago. It was a conspiracy theory that had been completely rejected by the local police, who found no foul play in the death of the staffer, Lori Klausutis. The underlying premise behind the claim, that Scarborough had been having an affair with Lori, was nonsensical. As we explained in the first episode, Scarborough barely knew who she was, and was 1,000 miles away in Washington, voting on the House floor on the day Lori died in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Yet the idea that Scarborough had killed a woman and covered it up had circulated in the dark corners of the Internet for years, coming up time and again, first raised by Democratic partisans, then by a well-known Republican, until it made its way to the White House, producing angst and torment for T.J. Klausutis, Lori's widower, and the rest of her family, for whom the conspiracy theories about her death
3: are outrageous lies. I have never had an opportunity to get this fixed or corrected or go on the record and do what I owed Lori, never. And nobody, and I mean nobody, should have to be used in such a fashion. And so these are extremely painful things and and that, that anything should be added on that kind of loss and that pain, that's just inhuman, quite honestly.
2: How exactly did all this happen? How did a conspiracy theory originally pushed by the left wind up getting adopted and then embellished by the political right? And how should the news media respond when the President of the United States leads the charge, making patently false allegations that disrupt the lives of ordinary people? I'm Michael Isikoff, and we're exploring those questions in A Death in Florida, a special three-part edition of conspiracy Land. Brought to you by Skullduggery. Episode 2, Chapter 4, The Conspiracy That Won't Go Away. As we told you in the last episode, the roots of this story begin in the summer of 2001, when the media was obsessing about the mysterious disappearance of intern Chandra Levy, after discovering she had been having an affair with Democratic congressman Gary Condon. And how that media orgy in turn spurred whispers, and then demands from liberal activists, that the media give equal attention to the death of Lori Klausutis, who worked for then-Republican congressman Scarborough. Then one morning, that September, the media interest in either story dissolved in an instant.
3: It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. Another
4: one. Another plane just hit. Right! Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building.
2: Within minutes of the terror attacks, the TV cameras parked in front of Gary Condon's apartment vanished, as did references to Lori Klausutis on the left-wing blogs. But the idea that there was a dark secret in Joe Scarborough's past never really disappeared. Indeed, it would come back five years later in the summer of 2006, when Florida Democratic senator, former astronaut Bill Nelson, was up for re-election. And, says Mark Caputo, a political reporter, then with the Miami Herald and now with Politico, a well-known and quite controversial Republican lined up to run against him.
4: Hello, my name is Katherine Harris, and I'm running for the United States Senate.
5: The real heavyweight candidate on the Republican side was Katherine Harris. She had big name ID, and she was really well-liked by the base of the Republican Party. But the establishment of the Republican Party was certainly no fan.
2: Harris, you may recall, had been the Florida Secretary of State during the epic Florida recount battle in 2000. Widely accused by Democrats and much of the media, of seeking to block the recounting of votes in order to help the campaign of George W. Bush.
5: The establishment was worried because Catherine Harris just kind of had a lot of problems. And some of them thought she was a little unhinged, a little too much of a lightweight, that she was too polarizing. And at the same time, there were a number of Republicans who were out there trying to get other candidates to run. And one of those candidates that they thought who had name ID who was well-known, was not your average Joe at the time. It was Joe Scarborough, who at the time had the show Scarborough Country.
6: You're
1: about to enter Scarborough Country. No passport required. No PC police allowed.
5: And they figured, you know, he's a former congressman from the Panhandle. He would be perfect because he's got high name ID and he could win. So when Catherine Harris finds out that Joe Scarborough is being recruited or being mentioned by high-level Florida Republicans to run for Senate against her, she hits the roof.
2: Harris reached into Scarborough's past and spread what is known in the trade as oppo-dirt.
5: And what she started doing is she started calling donors. She started calling insiders in the Republican Party of Florida saying, I I don't know what Joe Scarborough is doing, thinking he's running when he's got that dead intern on his hands. That was like a kind of a pretty big slander uh, at the time. And well, hell, it still is. So when Katherine when Harris is calling up people and saying these crazy conspiracy theories, and again, this is a crazy conspiracy theory that was propagated by the far left to slime at the time a Republican congressman, well, Republicans were aghast. They were wondering, like, my God, why is a congresswoman, a former Florida secretary of state, doing these crazy things and saying these crazy things? Before Caputo broke the story of
2: Harris's dirt dishing, he reached out to Scarborough and to T.J. Sudis,
5: Lori's widower. I, I felt kind of bad reaching out to Scarborough, and I felt bad reaching out to Lori's family as well, even worse about that. Because, you know, at the same time that you, you're kind of duty-bound to report these things out, you don't want to be a vector for a bit of viral misinformation that obviously hadn't gone away. Scarborough, Caputo recalls, was angry
2: pointing out that the conspiracy theories about the death of Klaus Sutis had originally been swirling around left-wing blogs. And he even thought about suing Harris.
3: As for TJ? Quite honestly, I just, I could not believe that, you know, here it is, what, five years after, you know, she had passed, that this would even still be a story. And it was just a bit shocking. And the other thing is, is we're talking about a U.S. Senate race and what Lori had to do with any of that just, I don't know, it was just quite surprising that, that this would have been something that somebody would have tried to use for leverage in a political race. It, it just didn't make any sense. And so it just, it really, honestly, it just pisses me off that we keep getting used to make some political point be quite blunt.
2: As it turns out, Scarborough never ran for the Senate that year. And while Harris had clear sailing to the nomination, her campaign, wracked by turmoil, went on to get clobbered by Nelson in the general election, which was, says reporter Caputo, not a big surprise.
5: This was just kind of one of those examples, like when a candidate engages in rank in baseless conspiracy theories that harm real people, it's usually a sign that they're not going to win. I say usually because, well, that's not always the case.
2: One of those who followed the story and was in no mood to dismiss it as a crazy conspiracy theory was Marcos Malitzis, A progressive activist, he was the founder of the Daily Coast, a popular blog and message board for partisan Democrats, convinced the media was carrying water for the George W. Bush White House and was generally biased in favor of Republicans. As far as Malitzis was concerned, that bias was on full display when the media hounded Condit over the disappearance of Chandra Levy, but showed little interest in investigating the death of Laurie Klausudis, as he explained to me when he sat down for an interview.
7: You had Joe Scarborough complaining about Democrats benefiting from a double standard, and Joe Scarborough himself benefited from a double standard.
2: What do you believe was the double standard
7: here? The double standard that is at the same time that this Laurie employee of his died in his district office, You had Gary Condit, a Democrat, who had an intern who died under mysterious conditions, and the entire media and political establishment just assumed he had murdered her. But this idea that he was a Democrat, he was treated completely different than Joe Scarborough was when he had a—the facts were fairly similar. You had a campaign or staff employee die under mysterious conditions.
2: Melitzas first wrote about Klaus death for Daily Kos in 2005, asserting the press generally ignored it for obvious reasons. Her boss was a Republican. Then he brought it up in 2010 when he got into a Twitter spat with Scarborough, prompting MSNBC chief Phil Griffin to ban him from the network for what he called the ugly cheap shot you took at Joe. Milicis has since been allowed back on the cable network. But when I talked to him recently, he stood behind everything he wrote and said about the subject, insisting that what was sauce for the goose condit was sauce for the gander Scarborough. Well, let, let's 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 take that apart. I mean, are the situations really parallel? In the case of Gary Condit, we do know he was having an affair with Chandra Levy at the time that she disappeared with Joe Scarborough. There's nothing to suggest he had any relationship of any kind with Lori Klesudis, other than the fact that she was employed in a satellite office in his district.
7: I mean, you can pick apart. you're gonna sit there and look for exact parallels, obviously you're not gonna find them because there's no such thing as an exact parallel.
2: And you wrote, around the time of the Condit Levy craziness, another congressional intern slash aide died under mysterious circumstances, Lori Klesudis. What was your basis for saying that she died under mysterious circumstances?
7: I mean, I don't remember what I, you know, 15 years ago, what my, what I was basing that on. But likely it was based on the fact that, that, uh, it's a good question. Probably that that there was a lot of discussion about what may have happened. I mean, plain and simple.
2: Right. I mean, you know, look, there was a police investigation. They concluded there was no sign of foul play. There was an autopsy that gave an explanation for how it is that she came to die. I'm just wondering, it sounds like you didn't have any evidence of anything untoward or improper about Scarborough's involvement with Lori Klosutis and her death.
7: No, but, you know, again, we all know I cover elections. That when you run for office, people dig into your record. Basically, if he runs, all this will be litigated. didn't mean that he did anything. It just means that if he runs, if he ran, he he would have to face those questions.
2: And then you brought it up again in 2010. And this is this series of exchange that gets you banned from MSNBC. But you start out in one of your tweets, like story of a certain dead intern RT, retweet at Joe NBC. Now, Laurie Klausutis was not an intern.
7: All right, you got me. I got Sheila Staff. Right. But what that I mean, clearly, that's not All the right. point.
2: You're fanning the flames of somebody's tragic death without any evidence there was anything improper. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm saying. Why does one wrong against Gary Condit justify you bringing up Joe Scarborough and suggesting there's something mysterious about the death of one of his aides.
7: Because I never once suggested it should be a story. Then what was your point? My point? Oh my fucking God, are you serious? My point, which I've made several times, was that Joe, had he been a Democrat, that would have been a story. I'm not saying it should have been a story.
2: Well, maybe is that is that the better point to make that none of this absent absent evidence that really does connect uh, a member of Congress to the death of a staffer that maybe we should be ignoring these stories completely.
7: Um, I think that's an excellent way to look at it, actually. Yes.
2: Another way to look at it is that partisans on both sides soon found new ways to communicate with each other and do end runs around traditional media with its prickly standards about what's suitable to publish. The rise of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook allowed all of us to stay connected and communicate with each other in our self-erected silos. But it also made it much easier for political partisans including extremists on the fringe, to reach like-minded audiences, stoking their own prejudices and paranoia, paving the way for conspiracy theories to flourish like never before. Chapter 5 The Blood Feud At this point, it's worth moving forward a few years to explore the blood feud between Donald Trump and Joe Scarborough that is central to this story. Hard as it might seem today to remember, it wasn't always so. Scarborough and his wife and co-host Mika Brzezinski had actually once been friendly with Trump welcoming him on Morning Joe during the early days of his campaign for the presidency.
6: Donald Trump. Donald Donald Trump. You're saying
1: such nice things this morning that I hate to break it up. I'd rather just listen. Okay. uh,
2: uh, 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 And the conversations were even cozier off
6: camera. You know what I thought was the um, kind of wow moment was the guy you brought up on stage?
1: Yeah, that was great. Um, we played it several times this morning. We played, we played it up played against better. Obama. They're both guys. Both, both guys. What oh, we yes, we played Obama first. The
6: young guy the And was then we played champ. the
1: guys. I saw it, I watched your show this morning. Mm. You have me almost as a legendary figure. I thought. Well, I thought I did really well in the debate show, I have to tell you.
6: I didn't. <laughs> One more segment, and then we're good. Thank you for doing this. Okay.
1: I'm doing it because I did nothing. Okay. You, you know you get, You get great ratings and a raise. Mm-hmm. Me, I did
6: nothing getting a real window into your, so... Well... Just
1: make us all look
2: good, that's right. Exactly. (laughs) To be sure, Scarborough soon started to cool on Trump over his proposed Muslim ban, his comments about Vladimir Putin, and other issues the exchanges on the show grew more contentious. Donald, 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 you're not going to keep talking. We will go to break if you keep talking. We're going to ask you questions. All All right, go to break, go to break,
1: everybody, go to break.
2: The TV host, a rock aficionado, even mocked the candidate for seeming briefly to soften his stance on immigration in a song he recorded and posted on Facebook called Amnesty Don. And yes, this is Scarborough singing.
1: He said certainly can be a soft
2: Yet Joe and Mika were still on good enough terms that they flew down to Mar-a-Lago for New Year's Eve 2017, chatting with Trump at poolside in an unsuccessful attempt to land Trump's first interview as president. Then, in the days after the inauguration, Trump invited the two of them to lunch at the White House with his daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner. But Trump, bristling over the media calling out his claims to having had the largest inauguration crowd in history, got annoyed when the Morning Joe hosts wouldn't agree that his first week as president had gone well. The lunch got tense, the guests and their host argued, and things went downhill from there. Within a few months, Scarborough and Brzezinski had become unrelenting critics.
6: I think he's such a narcissist. It is possible that he's m- mentally ill in a way.
1: He lies every day. A lot of times, he lies every minute. Prompting Trump, of course, to fire back.
5: In this case, the president tweeting that Morning Joe host Mika Brzezinski was bleeding from a facelift at one point, and he referred to Joe Scarborough as psycho. There is
2: always a lot of debate among the media about how seriously to take Trump's tweets. But often overlooked is that they are catnip for his base. In this case, Trump's attacks on Scarborough, calling him Psycho Joe, inspired his most fervent supporters to start rooting around in the TV host's past.
5: Matt Couch with America First Media Group. Welcome to America First Media on Thursday morning. If you listened to our last
2: Conspiracy Land series, you heard a lot about Matt Couch. An Arkansas-based MAGA-loving entrepreneur and arch conspiracy theorist, who uses live-streaming periscopes on Twitter to fund his assorted private investigations into dark plots by the deep state. Most notably, an imagined political assassination of slain DNC staffer Seth Rich. When Trump started going after Scarborough, Couch and a sidekick named Josh Flippo announced they would now be investigating Laurie Klausutis' death, tweeting, by our latest count, 383 times about it posting photos of Lori, newspaper clippings, the police report, and much else.
5: Going back on Lori Klosadas, we've been working on that for about six months. We have the autopsy reports, we have the police reports. So we now have kind of, so to speak, a golden goose, if you will. We have it in safes, we have it on zip drives. And, uh, you know, I know that that's not something that Joe Scarborough or his brother or any of those people wanna hear. The thing with Lori Clasadas, folks, is it literally is a, Uh, a nasty situation. It's definitely a cover-up as well. There's absolutely no doubt that this girl was murdered. Tweets that by late
2: November 2017 made their way from at real Matt Couch with several hundred thousand followers to at real Donald Trump with over 80 million.
0: President Trump lashed out at an MSNBC anchor, Joe Scarborough, alluding to this deranged conspiracy theory about Scarborough, asking in a tweet about NBC, quote, will they terminate low ratings Joe Scarborough based on the unsolved mystery that took place in Florida years ago? Investigate, exclamation point. Uh, To be clear, this is the president of the United States attempting to exploit the tragic death of a young woman that occurred in 2001, one that had nothing to do with Joe Scarborough. There were no findings of foul play, but today the president used the loss of this young woman to score this cheap and ugly political point, the pain that her friends and family might feel be damned.
2: We should note that after that brief dust-up in 2017, Trump appeared to drop the subject from his daily tweet diet. But the Daily Beast later reported that the president continued to fume about Scarborough and directed his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to reach out to David Pecker until recently the publisher of his favorite publication, The National Enquirer, urging him to dig into the klaus case. The White House denied that report, but Dr. Cyril Wecht, the world-renowned pathologist who we told you about in the first episode, recalls that he was indeed contacted by the National Enquirer around this time, asking him if he found anything suspicious about the klaus case.
1: I recall receiving an email or a phone call asking me if I would be willing to review an autopsy report and
7: express my opinion. I uh, stated yes. The call, uh, the contact was from the National Enquirer. Then they sent me the autopsy report on um, this uh, young woman, which I reviewed. I then called them back and gave them my opinion.
2: What did you tell them?
7: I told them that I had no basis or reason following my review of the report to express a different opinion. I thought the autopsy was complete, the discussion was thorough and extensive, and I felt that the findings were correct.
2: The National Enquirer never published a story, apparently concluding that the conspiracy theory being pushed by the president didn't meet its standards. But unbowed, Trump would return to it once again, two and a half years later, just as Morning Joe was about to score a journalistic coup. Chapter 6. The Tweet Storm and the Firestorm In the spring of 2020, Joe Biden, having clinched the Democratic nomination, was facing questions about the allegations by a former staffer, Tara Reid, that he had sexually assaulted her in the 1990s. With the pressure building to respond, Biden's campaign chose Morning Joe as the forum for him to answer questions about the matter for the first time. The interview was scheduled for the morning of May 1st. The news that Scarborough had landed the Biden exclusive appears to have set Trump off. On April 30th at 12.24 a.m., Trump tweeted a reference to Psycho Joe Whatever Happened to Your Girlfriend Scarborough? The president's son, Donald Trump Jr., also weighed in that evening. What show is Joe going on to discuss Lori klaus he tweeted.
6: Former Vice President Joe Biden, would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid?
1: I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened, and it didn't. It never happened.
2: By most accounts, Biden's forceful denial of Reid's allegations, coming amid new questions about her credibility, effectively squelched what had been looming as a potential threat to his candidacy. Perhaps even more galling for the president, it also goosed Morning Joe's ratings. Whatever the trigger, the president was just getting started. The first one came early, at 6.38 a.m. on May 4th, 2020, just three days after the morning show appearance by Biden. Comcast, Trump wrote, a reference to Comcast, the media giant that owns NBC and MSNBC, should open up a long-overdue Florida cold case against psycho Joe Scarborough. I know him and crazy Mika well. Used them beautifully in the last election. Dumped them nicely. And will state on the record that he is nuts besides, bad ratings. Hashtag open Joe cold case. Then at 6.54 a.m. on May 12th, when will they open a cold case on the psycho Joe Scarborough matter in Florida? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so. Why did he leave Congress so quietly and quickly? Isn't it obvious? What's happening now? A total nut job. Then there was this on May 20th. Trump complained that his longtime political advisor, Roger Stone, convicted of lying to Congress and witness intimidation, had been treated unfairly, while he wrote, "'Guys like low-rating psycho Joe Scarborough are allowed to walk the streets! Open cold case!' exclamation point." And on May 23rd, the president retweeted Matt Couch writing about the Klausudis death, adding his own commentary. "'A blow to our head? Body found under his desk? Left Congress suddenly? big topic of discussion in Florida, and he's a nut job with bad ratings, keep digging, use forensic geniuses. And so it went, smack in the middle of the COVID pandemic and a crippling economic recession, 10 tweets in April and May from the President of the United States about a supposed murder of a young woman 19 years ago that no evidence exists ever actually took place. And those tweets had an enormous impact. They were retweeted 239,000 times and earned 873,400 likes. Overall mentions of Cold Case Joe and the Lori Klausuda's case on Twitter skyrocketed, according to Jennifer Granston of Zignal, a social media research firm that analyzed the reach of Trump's tweets at our request.
4: So what we saw up until late April was an average 111 daily tweets about the case. We then saw a number of spikes, the first one being driven by a tweet from Donald Trump Jr. that relived the Lori Closudis debate. And then shortly after that, in May, we saw a series of tweets from the president.
2: All told, Signal found there were 588,788 mentions of the Lori Closudis matter during the month of May, comments that ricocheted through social media, almost entirely driven by the president's tweets and the controversy they generated. That seems like a pretty dramatic spike.
4: It does. And, you know, in our numbers, when we look at this, we're seeing a a very significant spike every time that happens. And really, that is what's driving the increase in those conversations. So what does this tell us? What this tells us is that just by nature of President Trump tweeting, he carries a tremendous weight in his ability to, to drive opinion and, and drive attention to things regardless of whether or not they are true or false or somewhere in between. The president's
2: tweet storms left much of official Washington flabbergasted. Jonathan Carl, ABC's chief White House correspondent, had covered Trump ever since he was a cub reporter for the New York Post in the 1990s. And he had gotten used to his off-the-wall tweets and promotion of wild conspiracy theories, such as his oft-repeated claim that Barack Obama had not been born in the United States. But Carl was gobsmacked by the tweets about
0: Scarborough. I mean, this is like Alex Jones territory. But the way I looked at it is, the president of the United States is outright accusing another person of murder. I, I mean, I was truly, truly blown away by the idea that, that, that he was doing this.
2: So when Trump's new press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, held one of her first press briefings at the White House, Carl felt compelled to ask her about it.
0: Why is the president making these unfounded allegations? I mean, this is, this is pretty nuts, isn't it? Uh, the president's accusing somebody of, of possible murder. The family is pleading with the president to, to please stop uh, unfounded conspiracy theories. Why is he doing it?
4: Well, you know, I would note that the president said this morning that this is not an original Trump thought, um, and it is not. In fact, 2003 on Don Imus's show, it was Don Imus and Joe Scarborough that joked about killing an intern, joked and laughed about it. So that was, I'm sure, pretty hurtful to Lori's family. And Joe Scarborough himself brought this up with Don Imus, and Joe Scarborough himself can answer it.
2: The exchange the White House press secretary was referring to was in fact real, though not exactly as she presented it. In 2003, Scarborough was promoting his new MSNBC show, Scarborough Country, and appeared on the simulcast radio show of shock jock Don Imus then an anchor for the cable network's morning lineup, best known for his towel-snapping locker room banter. For the record, McEnany had it wrong. It wasn't Scarborough who brought it up to Imus. It was Imus who raised it, after Scarborough sought his advice about how to host his new show. And while Scarborough's response hardly seems especially sensitive given the gravity of the allegations, it sounds more like nervous laughter from a guest caught off guard than anything else.
1: Tell me what I need to do. Well no, you're doing great. I mean don't be afraid to be funny. Okay. Because you are funny. Uh that was a you know, I asked you why you went in Congress. You said you'd had sex with the intern and then you had to kill her. <laughs> exactly. I mean that's yeah, pretty risky to say. So what are
0: you gonna do? She came armed with a, a very misleading data point that had basically nothing to do with the allegation being made by the president. Uh suggesting that Scarborough, you know, had joked about um about this death of, of, of his former staffer. And it was completely ridiculous because that's not what happened. You know, this was, uh, you know, she, she, had, she had this quote from when he was on with Don Imus, and Imus is like saying something that's ridiculous. And, you know, and, and Scarborough's kind of just trying to push him off. But even, I mean, again, even if it were true, it's totally irrelevant to what the president had, had said. So I guess this was an early indication of she would go out there with a binder, She would have something to say about anything that was asked. And usually it would be, instead of shining light on something the president had done or said, it would be throwing heat back at the press in some way. So in this case, throwing more heat back at just Scarborough.
2: My sense in watching it is you were flummoxed.
0: Yes, yes. You know, you don't know what you're going to get when you ask a question like that. And I, I kind of actually, I assumed that she would just not answer or you know, you know, change the subject. But but the idea that that she would dig in and throw more dirt at Joe Scarborough, somebody the president had now in a series of tweets accused of murder, yeah, that, that was a flummoxing moment.
6: On Morning Joe, the hosts were furious. Donald, you're a sick person. You're a sick person. To put this family through this to put her husband through this. that a good woman,
1: a young woman's desire to do something good for the country that she has loved has led first to people on the far left on the internet sullying her name. And then a Republican senatorial candidate years later sullying her name. And then people on the far left later sullying her name. And now the president of the United States sullying this good woman's name, and accusing her 19 years later when she can't defend herself of things that I'm sure would so horrify her, but again, all because she wanted to contribute to her country, to give back to her country. It is is heartbreaking. The cruelty is unspeakable.
2: But it didn't end there. After the firestorm over his comments, Trump on June 2nd was asked about them when he appeared on a friendly format, the radio show of Fox & Friends anchor Brian Kilmeade.
3: Lastly, uh, I know you've been taking aim at Joe Scarborough and Chris Cuomo. Why put them in your crosshairs when there's so many other huge problems out there?
1: I just do it. You know, the people hit me, I hit back. It's just, you know, my fight. I fight. I've always felt that about Scarborough. A lot, a lot of people in Florida felt he got away with murder, I think. So, uh, you know, I've always felt that that's not an uncommon story, if you look at it, so we don't have to waste time on it. But uh, I've always felt that he got away with murder. That was my feeling, a very strong feeling, and I do feel it. Do
2: you remember, you know, just the moment you saw the President of the United States was tweeting about this?
8: Yeah, yeah. I remember very clearly when, when he told me. And I went on Twitter and I looked at it and all the subsequent ones and the press briefings from the White House.
2: Jennifer Talley is an Air Force research scientist and for the past nine years has been in a live-in relationship with T.J., Lori's widower. She has watched him obsess over the Internet conspiracies about his late wife the lies about how she was supposedly cheating on him and having a sexual affair with Scarborough, at times tearing himself apart over
8: them. He has recurring and repeating nightmares, anxiety attacks, insomnia. And so it's quite obvious to me when things explode on Twitter, when they explode online, when the attacks on his family ramp up. And his his behaviors change. His life is affected. His mood is affected. It's it's painful to watch. He'll watch those you know stupid videos from the conspiracy theorists multiple times to catch things that they've said about Lori to try to get them taken down. He spends a lot of time flagging things on Twitter over and over and over again. The same things, over and over and over again, where they say things that are untrue and they lie about her and they lie about him.
2: But Trump's tweet storms took things to a whole new level.
8: I was angry. I was angry that he and and um, his family are being used. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was very angry. I was very upset. You feel powerless and helpless and All you can do is just watch a loved one go through this. And there's, there's nothing else you can do as a private citizen, as a person without power. So yeah, this latest time was worse I think than anything that I'd gone through with him and just the, the amplification of this conspiracy at that level it's just, it's mind boggling. So, you know, we discussed what it, what can you do? What, what what defense is there? What can be done to stop any of this?
3: Out of those discussions, TJ came up with an idea. And I spent a little bit of time talking with my my brother-in-law, who is a lawyer. And he and I, over the years, have had more conversations about, about this and how we might shut it off or how can we change things. And we came up with the idea of writing this letter. After years of angst and torment over the conspiracy theories about his wife,
2: this was, T.J. said, his last play.
3: All I'm left with is writing a letter and trying to appeal to the humanity of the president of Twitter or CEO or whatever his title is. That's all I was left with.
2: Next on Conspiracy Land, Trump's tweet storms about TJ's wife stir up the bizarre world of QAnon.
1: Sources within the United States Special Ops group said that former congressional staff aide Lori Klazutis had been reading secret explosive true colors documents.
2: And they revive tough questions for Twitter.
0: What would the president have to say on
5: Twitter to be kicked off? Well, so first and foremost, we we hold every single account to the same standard, to the same rules and to the same policies.
2: But TJ's letter finally prods the company to take some action.
1: For the first time in memory, people in the United States are being honest with themselves about hate speech, being honest with themselves about the damage conspiracy theories can do. And into that moment of self-reflection, TJ launched his letter.
2: Full disclosure, as we were wrapping up this podcast series, one of the individuals we've told you about, Matt Couch, sued us over last year's conspiracy land, accusing us of defaming him when we reported that he had spread conspiracy theories about the death of former DNC staffer Seth Rich which asserted that Rich had leaked internal party emails to WikiLeaks. The complaint doesn't dispute that Couch has indeed spread these claims, but states they were based on his own sources and research, challenging the conclusions of the U.S. intelligence community, the FBI, Special Counsel Robert Mueller, and the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, that it was Russian intelligence agents, not Seth Rich, who provided the DNC emails to WikiLeaks. Yahoo News stands by our reporting in conspiracy land and believes the lawsuit is without merit.